0: As you're joining the pod, you know the deal. First four questions. First one, what was the moment in high school you knew you were destined for college?
1: Um, I think, so I played volleyball and soccer, both varsity in high school, and I played club outside of high school as well for both sports. And I think it was probably sophomore year where our team was at a travel tournament for volleyball. Um, And we went to Junior Olympics every year, like wherever in the U.S. to play the top teams. And our team was always like real small um, compared to the rest of the volleyball teams in the U.S. But we were always finishing in the top four, like always staying for playoffs, always there for, you know, semifinals and finals. And I think finally sophomore year where you're sitting there and those two courts are just surrounded by college recruits then you start to think, oh, this there's something here besides just having fun and playing right, right, right. Um, and trying to do the best I can. Um so I think it was that like where you're visibly surrounded by college and realize that you're one of, you know, at that time 30 players left in the field that are right. on the court and right. everybody's watching and can call you. Like, you know, that sophomore year whenever it starts to hit where they can start to reach out to you. I think it took that like visible <laughs> like in- person experience to realize, oh, this is actually a possibility and like a real a real thing.
0: I love it, I love it, I love it. Question number two, who was your fiercest competitor? Who was someone that you played with maybe at a high school or collegiate level that you were like, this person makes no sense. I don't know what's going on. I can't do anything with them this is This is outstanding. They're outstanding.:
1: There was a girl that I played soccer against in high school. I went to Palisades High School in LA Unified and she went to Hamilton. It was like one of our soccer rivals. And I was a goalie. She was a forward. Okay. And she was just like unbreakable. You know, our defenders were really strong. They were really aggressive. They would constantly like be battling with her and pushing her down. And she got up every single time and like was (laughs) back at it and fast and You know, like, nothing could break her down. She's so good. And I think for her, like, she was the only person I was kind of scared of going up against. (laughs) Like, nervous about it because she was just so persistent and so, like, strong. That no matter what, she was, like, going to get back up. Even if, you know, one of our defenders, like, hip-checked her across the field. She would be back up and, like, right in your face the next minute. And so it was those kind of people that just... Never, never give up, and they're like just right at sense. your face all the time.
0: Do, do you remember her name or her number? Or
1: I'm gonna, I would have to like go back in the yearbooks oh, okay. of like
0: <laughs> you just, you know, just remember the Hamilton the High School of... Hall of
1: Fame. Yeah, the spirit. I, you of you the know, history. she had to have played in college or something. I'll have to look her up one one she of these days. Her. But she was, yeah. All four years, just like right in your face every second. (laughs) I
0: love it. I love it. I love it. Okay. Next question. Tell me about a teammate you had or someone you know that was super talented, but for whatever reason, wasn't able to kind of see their potential uh, fully expressed.
1: I mean, I feel like I have a lot of examples of that when you're on teams growing up. And there was uh, one girl that I'm thinking of on my soccer team um, in high school. She's super talented, really fast, just like very skilled with the ball, but really struggled out off the field. Like there was always something going on, you know, getting into trouble or like not doing the best in school. And at that time, especially as like a female athlete and everything, if you're going to try to play in division one, you have to also have good grades. <laughs> like yeah. You got to do it all right to get everything you want and to be at those top schools. And so like on the field, she's killing it. She's doing everything right. She's on the top teams. She's scoring goals, all of those things. But outside of it, like really struggled and didn't have a lot of like push and support to kind of get her through those pieces. So I think later on, she figured it out and she did community college for a while and eventually got into a D1 program and like, they, I think they won two national championships, but it was, you know, a journey. It wasn't like, oh, straight out of high school, right onto that team and win national championship after national championship. It was like, you're one of the top recruits probably, but you don't have the grades to get you into those schools. So, you know, take two more years, two steps backwards to to get to where you want to be. And I think that's hard for people that want to play in college. And especially if you're in a program where, like, the number of schools that have that level of um, play are limited, you need the grades and you need, you know, you still need all of those things in order to to make it happen. It's a lot for one teenager to manage.
0: It is. It is. It is. OK, well, Shouts out. To, shout out to her. I'm happy. I'm happy it has a, a positive story that she ended up, ended up working out. Next question. Question number four. What is the nicest thing a coach has ever done? for you?
1: I think I talked a little bit about this, but when I was in high school, one of my, my volleyball club coach was a like all-time Hall of Fame beach volleyball player. His name was Gene Selznick. Um, and he was very demanding, like seriously high expectations for our team and how we could perform and super, super knowledgeable about the game. But at the time, like to be that competitive, a lot of our teams we would go up against were, like, very strict about the diet you had to do and very strict about everything about their teams, especially on the women's side, I feel like. Um, but he just let us be people, like, let us be kids. And he would bring us, like, cake at our tournaments. And all the other teams are, like, eating celery sticks. And he's like, let have a cake. Where We went to New Orleans one time for a tournament and he took us out dancing. Um, and I think that it wasn't like one gesture or one thing. I mean, he was very hard and direct Mm -hmm. (laughs) as a coach, (laughs) but he also taught us that you can have a life too. You know, you can live outside of the sport and you can enjoy your life and you can do the things you want and have fun and be good on the court at the same time.
0: I love that. I love the gene, man. You still yeah, talk to I mean, the so stories about out.
1: Gene are endless. <laughs> I
0: love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. It might be a separate, uh, a separate episode, stories of Gene. I feel like there's tons of cool stuff in there, little nuggets. Um, so you yeah. have like an amazing journey to entrepreneurship, which we're going to get to, of course, because I love your company. But talk me through, you're a two-sport athlete, you go to an Ivy League school. It's like everything, If I don't know if people can draw that any better, right? Like if, if someone's thinking like, what do we want for our kids? It's like, I want them to play sports. I want them to get a good education. They've done those two things. You're done. You're a senior. Where is your mind? When did it start to settle into you that this thing was coming to an end? Was it at, at a point during your college career or was it like after?
1: I think it was probably... Maybe the last, like maybe junior year of college where, I mean, there's not a lot of opportunity for professional volleyball (laughs) or like anywhere you're going to go unless you're going to play, you know, for Team USA or something, which, you know, there's people, I'm five foot 11 people, you know, there were plenty of girls that are like six two, six four that could go play in the Olympics. It wasn't going to be me. So I feel like, you know, there's that realization in the first place that there's not a lot more to aspire to after playing D1. And, you know, you go to NCAAs, you have those things. And so I think at that point, you start to realize, like, I'm not going to play pro. And I have a lot of other interests, too. You know, as you taking classes in college, I was learning and I had internships around the city. And I, you know, had other jobs that I was working on the side, too. And so you just start to kind of put the pieces together. Uh, you know, something's going to happen when I graduate. And (laughs) I figure out what that is going to be. And I think this also for my parents, like my parents, there was zero expectation that anything was going to happen in the world of sports outside of you're going to get a job after college. Um, And I think for a long time, even when I went to school, I like wanted to be in that world. I wanted to be like a trainer, physical therapist, like do something that was still related to athletics. And then I think as I just explored in college and learned different things, I realized my interests were sort of not there. It's something I still love, but I felt like I could contribute in other ways.
0: I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. So you, you recognize that I, I'm a junior, there isn't a professional volleyball league at the time, there is now. Uh, there is now yes. but at the time there wasn't talk me through your first, your first full time job and if there was ever any thought in your mind, you mentioned earlier that you looked at maybe doing something closer to sports, tell me like when you first started that full time job after you graduated, was there ever a time where you were like you know what, I can, I can go and coach I can go and be a trainer I can get closer to the sport when you were dealing with members, so talk me through it, talk me, talk me through it.
1: I think I think about that all the time. I still think about mm-hmm. it. Um, my first job out of college, I was a teacher. So when I was in college, I um, took a lot of classes around like urban planning and city planning and just uh, social sciences. And I felt like if I wanted to work in communities or in like policy or anything like that, that I needed to like work in a city in like be there and you know so I thought okay what what's better than being on the ground teaching so I started as a teacher in New York City and Jeez. that was like wow <laughs> that was crazy it was insane an insane experience and I still think back like I was 21 with like all of the you know responsible for 30 kids in my classroom and you think Anything might be harder than like playing D1 sports while you're in an Ivy League school and working and like teaching was harder than all of those things. But I like, I think especially coming from California and then being in New York and teaching elementary school kids there, I was like, these kids need to be active. And there was so much, they're like in a building all day, sitting down, like, being drilled, like, here's your math, here's your English, here's your this, every day. And there I just was even like, can we take these kids outside and run them around? Like, they need that activity and they need to be active. And in some places, there were kids in my classes that were, you could tell they had like a natural athletic ability and -hmm. they were really interested in it, but they weren't exposed to it at all. And so even back then, I was like, how do I get these kids... The experiences that I had growing up as an athlete with a coach, trying some new skills, like being physically active, because some of them I feel like really were missing that in there every day. Um, And so much you can learn and discipline yourself and learn teamwork and learn coachability and all of those things from sports. And so it was always something that was on my mind, especially then, like being around kids every day. But still today, like all of my jobs, I've thought, well, what do I do if I, you know, went back and right. coach this or coach my kids or I've coached my kids a couple of times. And now my older son's about to enter middle school. Uh-huh. And I think, oh, maybe they're going to need a volleyball coach. But, you know, doing that and working and doing all the other things, yeah. who knows? That's wow. difficult to manage. What grade, what grade
0: were you teaching?
1: I taught first grade. Oh wow. Second and I taught grade. kindergarten through fifth grade. So I taught all the grade levels in only math. So I would like go around the building to all the different classrooms just teaching math.
0: Did you use obviously we're gonna talk about more professional corporate stuff, but I have to know this. Did you use props? Were you the teacher who came in with like Apples did you have like sling slinkies or whatever it is to to help kids like visualize some of like the you know, social property oh no
1: yeah, it was actually fun like I enjoyed my job as a math teacher because I got to like I was supplementing whatever the regular teacher was doing by coming in and teaching math, so i didn't I got to like go outside of the curriculum a lot and just make up my own things. So I definitely got to be a lot more creative and you know, we would do things like the bridge, like bridge building with marshmallows and toothpicks and you know, stuff that made them think rather than just whatever they were learning at the time. So I had fun with that for sure. That sounds fun,
0: that sounds fun, that sounds fun. So you're doing teaching, you move into, you know more traditional, I'll call it corporate America, what have you, talk to me about, you know, what it felt like to leave? Because now you've already established some familiarity, you've done it for a minute. What made you feel like, you know, you wanted to leave? I know, especially for a lot of teachers, it's hard to leave the kids, right? Like, talk to me about what was going on in, in that decision-making process.
1: You know, I think it's similar to what we were talking about with, like, leaving volleyball. And it's, I think, self-awareness. aware And, like, there were you know, I was a good teacher, but I wasn't an incredible teacher. Like there were people that were in my school who were just like, they just had a really natural talent for it. Whatever it was, they were exceptional. And I was good. I wasn't exceptional. And the more that I was in New York City public education, or just in education in general there, you see how many other issues there are, like how many issues our kids were dealing with, in their everyday life, around housing, around medical care, around food insecurity, like everything they were dealing with. And my skill set, I was more and more realizing was around planning, around like strategy and technology and all these other things where I felt like I can still help these kids, these communities, these people, wherever they are with doing something else. And like, You know, the incredible teacher might not have the skill set to do technology, but I can do that. So I felt like it was more and more realizing where my skill set lied or like where my strengths were and, you know, coming to terms with the fact that I can contribute, but it's going to be in a different form. And I always told myself when I left teaching, like, if I don't find something that's as challenging and like uh, not boring as this then I can always go back and teach, you know, because we always, we always need a teacher. So I kind of said that to myself, like, if I don't continue to be challenged and feel that way in my career, then I know this is here and how it feels to do that. So that's, that was kind of how I left. Still not knowing exactly what that was going to lead to, but, <laughs> but, you know, settled in the fact that I could contribute in other ways. Right.
0: Love it. Love it. And I think the thing that's really interesting there is like the self-awareness around, okay, I, and the theme kind of I think in your life, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that you, you have an altruistic mindset. You want to help the whole. And in doing so, you recognize like, all right, teaching has a direct impact on that. But so too does, you know, being able to influence strategy around how to better support the, the, the greater community, right? And if that's something that I have, more of a knack for, why don't I just naturally transition to that or develop the skills to be able to do that, etc. Um, which kind of leads me to, to, to the next phase. I'm not going to say this is a phase in your life. I don't know how you're describing the different phases, but you find yourself in Europe, and I'll allow you to give a little color about how you got to Europe, but talk to me about you know your understanding of corporate America, the role that it plays in people's lives, and then, and the social elements associated with that, and then comparing that to your life in Europe, because I think that's that's really fascinating and so people would love to hear about.
1: Yes, so um, <laughs> after I left teaching, I worked in a variety of roles, mostly in the public sector in the US, um, LA, New York, and was in like technology implementation type of roles. So for the school district implementing a new teacher evaluation system and you know going from a classroom up until this like huge bureaucracy and adjusting to those things and just how long everything takes <laughs> all of the all of the things associated with you know being in this much more like business type of setting and politicalness around it and so i did various roles throughout for a while until we My husband got a job offer to move to London and it was never anything I had considered. I'd always been like very committed to my community here in LA and, you know, working in the settings that I'd worked in, like very focused on the U.S. and education systems and like our support for urban communities here in LA. It was just out of the blue. So we moved and decided to take that risk which was yet another like leap of who knows what's gonna come from this but we're gonna try um so we up and moved to london with two small kids and it was a whole lesson in life in life like everything you think oh they speak english we speak english like it can't be that hard to adjust to this but everything's different um and settling into that and then like transitioning career to over to a different country where I've worked in public sector US for so long it doesn't necessarily translate to the UK and every job I started looking for there they just it was like back to zero you don't have the experience you don't understand our systems that's not how it works here <laughs> so i went back to the start basically and tried to figure out how, like, again, the self-awareness, like what are my core skill sets of the things that I can execute on and how do I find myself a career there? So I started like, you know, probably f- three levels behind what I was doing in the U.S. as like a contract project manager and then, you know, worked my way up in that role. But I there I was working for a, like a large corporate transport company. Totally different, again. Right. Um, and just navigating everything, like you know, you do speak the same language, but everything is different. And in the corporate world as well, like very buttoned up, very like they think that Americans are just overly excited about everything. <laughs> um, and so, really having to sort of tone down and you know fit in with the way that they work over there. So the whole experience was kind of wild, but amazing at the same time.
0: I love it. I love it. And. I guess, going on to like the wild cultural differences, what did you notice about, you know, the the Londoners, I'll call them, their like relationship to work versus like the American relationship to work?
1: Ooh, um, should we, we should talk about this so we can bring it over here. Um, <laughs> I found there's a very clear divide between like I'm off work and I'm working. Whereas in America, and I think I see this on, like, social media and stuff all the time, where an American, you know, our out of office replies, like, I will get back to you. I'll be checking my message. So, you know, I'll have my phone with me, even if I'm in a hospital bed, like, I'll get back to you. And there, it is much different. Like, you are expected to take a holiday. You're expected for it to be completely uncontactable. Like, nobody's going to reach out to you for help. Nobody's going to ask you a question while you're off. Um, And there's just this really clear divide of I'm working, but I also have a life and an expectation that like people should have that space uh, when they're off and people plan for it, which is, I think, another thing that happens here because you're always reachable and you're expected to always be reachable. People don't, you know, train the people that work around you to cover for you while you're off. So we rely on being able to contact you, whereas there, the expectation is they're gone and they're gone for two weeks. So somebody else is going to have to be able to do their job if it right. if it gets there, right? Like somebody has to cover for that. So it's very different. I mean, I also started, I had my second son, like within the first couple of weeks of us being there. Wow. And after my first son here, I went back to work after 10 weeks and there I was with home with him for five months, which was just like unheard of. And I went back to work and people were like, why are you here? You have a (laughs) five-month-old at home? Why are you here? Like what, you shouldn't be back yet. And I, you know, coming from the US was like, I had so long at home with him. I, this feels normal to be back at work. Like I left my other child after 10 weeks and they were just, it's unreal to them to think that somebody would do that. The youngest child
0: is listening and feels very special, but, uh, <laughs> but but at any rate, I think I think you touched on something there and I, it dovetails kind of into your entrepreneurial journey. You're seeing a lot of differences in the culture, right? And I don't want to give it away, uh, but you ultimately decide to start your own company that's inspired or in some part by what you were exposed to. Um, you know, in, in Europe, maybe share a little bit about, start with, you know, your company so people can understand it and maybe how the the culture in, in, in Europe kind of inf- directly influenced your, your desire to start Rent-A-Romper.
1: Yeah. Um, so my company now is Rent-A-Romper and we are rental clothing service for babies and toddlers. So zero to five, really. And we are essentially a shared closet of clothing. So our customers pay a monthly membership fee and then they can swap their clothes in and out as the children grow. And definitely influenced from my time, obviously with two young children growing very quickly and having to constantly stay up with like how quick they were growing. Um, and during those years when they were very young it was when we were living in London. And they're thrifting and like your local chair. Charity shop is what they call it, or thrift shop was on every street. Every corner had a a local charity shop. It was very common for people to, one, offload their kids' things to the charity shop and then to take things out as well. And just secondhand, it was just nature there. It wasn't like, at the time, thought down upon or, you know, it was something that people were seeking, especially in the kid's space, because like, why would you spend all this money on stuff that they're going to outgrow in a month? <laughs> um, and so there it was like in your face all the time, really easy to access. Um, so it wasn't like this additional chore of going to find the things you need. It just was there and accessible. And so when I came back to the U.S. and I was looking for solutions for my kids who are still growing as right, they do. Right. Um there wasn't anything. There's nothing that's easy. Even living in a you know city, there wasn't a lot of accessible secondhand. You were spending like loads of time shopping online or like on my lunch break, I'd like run to Target, try to find something, come back. Just this constant hecticness of life here um, and then trying to fit that in as well. So I was looking for not only is there a way to do this in a convenient way that makes my life easier, where over there, it's just part of your life, where I'm not scrolling and shopping constantly. And so it kind of came from that of, one, just make it accessible for people here to access that market, the secondhand space, and make it easy, just convenient, delivered to your home, just as you would like Amazon and everything else that we do every day. And I expect here to be able to do that and like save yourself time and money and the environment.
0: Yeah, I love I love it. I love the concept. I love everything about it. When I think of Europeans, I think of the fact that they leave their babies uh, outside in strollers and stuff like that for extended amounts of time. Extended amounts of time, and I'm like, wow, this is definitely different because uh, I don't think my mom would ever leave me alone for more than like a minute. I don't, I don't think she does that now. Um, I love you, mom, by the way. Uh, but <laughs> to that end. We understand and we see, like, the track, like, you know, you being like a civil servant and you always finding ways to get back to the community, which is amazing. Talk to me about the jump into entrepreneurship, because that's a different leap, right? Like, you being responsible for something, for a company, for other people, right? Especially when you add this sort of communal and altruistic element to it. Now people are depending on these sorts of goods and services and stuff like that. What gave you? I don't want to say the strength but because you already you know you already had that, but that that sort of extra um to say like all right, you know what I'm starting it. What what happened?
1: So I think I used to be uh, very risk averse, and I think moving to London like ripped the bandaid off, and now I am much more willing to risk. I mean, moving abroad with two small with a kid and a kid in my belly, like. It was a big risk, um, knowing nobody. So (laughs) and it panned out. Like it was a great experience. Yes, it was hard. Yes, all those things. But it's something that I like really value as a you know part of my life. And so ever since that jump, I think I've been more willing to to try things and see how they go. And this in particular, like, was just on my mind every day, every night for probably a year. And at the time. I was working for the transportation company and I was working it for our head of IT. So always exposed to like the startup space and, you know, all these tech companies right. trying to come pitch to us about how they can make our buses run faster or how they can, you know, XYZ see. data system. Yeah. yeah. And so you're just exposed all the time. Okay. This person who I didn't know started their own thing and I could do that. Like, you know, so exposure to the startup space where you see people over and over that are taking that leap, thinking of an idea and starting it. And so I was around that all the time for about six months in the role that I was in. And I was planning to attend a women's conference actually. And so I thought, you know what, why don't I just like make a business card and pretend when I go to this women's conference that I started this company. And so I did. I made a business card which in order to do that, I had to like make a logo in Microsoft Word or whatever I did. And by like put an email on there. And I went to the women's conference talking about as if I was the founder of rent And it didn't exist. Like there was nothing. And people were like, you have to do this. If you had started this company now, I would sign up right now. Or like my kids are older, but if you had this when I was, when they were young, this is genius. You have to do it. So I just got all this reinforcement immediately of this is a good idea. It's not just a good idea. It's like something that I would sign up for today. So that night I went home and I started an Instagram page. And then the next week I started a website. And the next week I started messaging people on Instagram, you know, all while I was doing a full-time job. So in some ways it wasn't like a full leap. It was like these steps one by one by one that started to just reinforce that this was an idea worth investing time in. And then, you know, six months later, I like had a live website with customers paying. And then, you know, you just had to go from there and keep going and keep building and keep, you know, iterating and getting all the customer feedback we can. So that was in 2020. So now we're three years in, almost four years in and uh, what started as a business card. I love it.
0: One of the things that I think is is interesting like, keeps coming up a little bit is you're saying like it it, it seems like you're really self aware <clears throat> in finding what you're good at and then just leveraging that to its umpteen power. Maybe talk to me a little bit about how when you came out of undergrad, you knew what you were good at, right like and how you still evolve and understand better like what you're good at right and what that looks like because I think of it as like a process, right? It's like, well, when you probably started playing volleyball, you probably weren't very good. You know, you're 5'11", so you're probably always tall, but you maybe weren't good when you started, I'm just assuming, and you got better over time. How do you now kind of identify what you're good at, not good at, and just, just your process for that?
1: Yeah, I think it's a work in progress always. <laughs> um, I have this, this poster, actually, that my son came home with one day from school that says all things are difficult before they're easy. And he like colored it in, you know, at sheet at school, they're learning about how to keep an open mindset. But I have it next to my desk. And I think about that really often. And I think about it with my kids when they like are trying a new sport or, you know, everything is hard the first time and you stick with it and you get better and you get better. And so I think about that in entrepreneurship because everything I do is new. Like I've never done e-commerce before. I've never had a clothing business before. I've never run social media ads before. So everything I have to do is new. And it's, I think the parts that I really struggle with are delegating. So like, I want to do it all myself and I want to learn it all. And I want to understand the business really well or understand all the pieces really well. So then I can, you know, maybe give it to someone else. But I think The skill sets that throughout my career have always like the thread through everything is how I work with people and like bring other people together and, you know, drive towards a goal without like an influencer, (laughs) almost not an influencer in the sense we think of today, but an influencer in leadership. Like I could make our team and get everybody on the same page about what we were trying to do and i was a captain on our my college team for 3 years and you know in my transportation role i was bringing together like the it side and the business side together to work on a project and i see that now too of like seeing the larger picture and bringing those people together and understanding like that marketing impacts our operational team and that those things come together and i think where i really struggle is like one person can't do it all. And that's where I still find challenges. Like I'll lean into that strategy and I'll lean into that like vision and collaboration and community every day. But that means I avoid the things that I don't like as much or that I don't, right. <laughs> but are still really business critical. Right? right. Um. So I think that's where my struggle has been. And it's hard, especially as like a I'm a solo founder, so I, you know, like the conversations I have about my own skill set are like with myself. So trying to be honest about that is challenging sometimes because you want to keep, you have to keep going. And sometimes I think like, this is just too much. I don't understand how to build XYZ thing and, you know, how to keep going from that is, can be difficult, but I guess it's just honesty with yourself.
0: I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. The... The thing that I'm, I'm actually really interested to hear your thoughts on. You started this business, it's growing, you're doing well. What is one thing you didn't know about entrepreneurship or one thing you thought you knew about entrepreneurship before you got into it, that you look back and you say, you know what, Lauren, that 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 was not true. That you thought that, but that that's wrong.
1: <laughs> I mean there's so many things. (laughs) Entrepreneurship first, like people say this, but you don't get it until you're in it, right? Like being a founder or being an entrepreneur is hard. It is really hard. Like people will tell you that, oh yeah, it's, it's hard being an entrepreneur, but you don't understand what they're talking about until you're actually in it. And so that's the first thing of like really to my core understanding how challenging it is to start a business and grow a business and maintain a life at the same time and, you know, just juggle everything that is on your plate. It's hard. So, I mean, I think that's the first lesson is just like I knew that this was going to be challenging, but to the extent that it is, you know, I was blissfully unaware. But I think. One part I struggle with now is like, it's 2023. I've been doing this for almost three years now or almost four years. And it's hard to think like the lessons I know now, like crap, I would have done that so different had it been two years ago. Like, let me just start all this over and and do it this way. And the lessons that you learn. And I think, you know, I have to really, in some ways, be nice to yourself because I didn't know these things back then. And I was learning and I was experimenting. So it's really hard not to be hypercritical. <laughs> and I think maybe that comes from like the athlete and the coach and everybody constantly yelling at you for every single thing you're doing wrong. Because I do that to myself. And it's it's hard to like stay in the mindset of look how far we've come, look what everything we've accomplished, and not just like criticize all the little things that happen.
0: Right. Yeah, I heard it. And and one thing I always talk about sometimes um, on these pods is is the feedback loop, right? And how you know in in sports you get it every day, right? You want to know how you did in practice? Watch the tape. The coach will tell you. As an entrepreneur, it's kind of you know the, the the whip effect of a lot of your actions you won't see for months. In case that you're mentioning like years, right? It's two years later, and you're like. Yeah, I should have. I, maybe I shouldn't have gone about it this way and that way. Um, maybe help me understand for you how you're processing being an entrepreneur, how your evolution as like a, a true entrepreneur has influenced the way you manage success and failure on a number of different your of uh, your different projects, right? Because I imagine before you were like super hard, you're probably still hard on yourself, but how you've gotten better at being able to manage that, assuming you have. <laughs>
1: Um I will take lessons or coaches anytime you want to talk to me about this. I'm still not that good at it. I I think like what you just were talking about, I am very critical and I think what I have gotten better at is trying to track data and look at data instead of just like I would be really reactive around, you know, somebody customer wrote a terrible mean email about they hate our service and I would be like on the floor, like crying, you know, like, they hate our business and all these things. Like, how do people want to write this about us? You know, not letting myself think about the 99 other emails or reviews that we've gotten that are really positive about how it's had a good impact for them. And so trying to be, I think that's the only, the one thing that I've been doing that's helping is trying to be less up and down and reactive over one thing and to look at data you know, on a regular basis, like on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, okay, what are the trends that we're seeing and not up and down over one email and one text message that was angry about something. And so pull, I guess, pulling myself a little bit up out of the weeds to see what's going on across the business at a higher level. And I think that's, that's the only thing I've been able to do, but I, it's really hard. Right now I'm working on creating an advisory council. So I'm putting together a group of, uh, it's about six people to voice concerns to, because I think that's one thing that I've learned too, is like, I need objective feedback. That's not just cycling around in your head, right? Like you can't always get better at the sport without someone else's opinion or, you know, a coach or someone that's an expert in goalkeeping. Like I need a goalkeeping coach or I need you know, someone to help me move faster this way. Like you have expertise for reason. And I think that's one lesson I'm learning too is I just need other voices to help me to navigate all of this.
0: I love it. 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 Okay. We're coming to the end, but I want to hear what you're excited about. What's coming down the pipe for Renault Romper. What should we what should we be looking forward to? Uh curious curious to hear what's going on.
1: Yeah. So I think 2024 is going to be a very good year. I'm very excited about it. This year, we have grown almost 300% since January. So it has been like a roller coaster in a great way. And now I'm just excited to like put everything we've learned and all those lessons that I wish I knew two years ago to work. We have a great community, like parents that just are advocating for this type of a service and are like, one thing that I think is exciting is the parents that we talk to that have been customers of us for a while. One thing that they say is they just don't buy clothes anymore, which when you think about just the amount of work it is to buy clothes and how much, how expensive it is for families and how much waste there is, it's awesome to hear that, you know, we're actually like changing behavior. So that's really exciting. So 2024 is gonna be good, (laughs) very good. (laughs) Um, I'm looking forward to like really growing the business and, you know, positioning us for something exciting and just health of my kids and like to see them continuing to grow because that's super fun.
0: We love it. We love it. Where can people find you? Where can people, you know, get in touch with Runner Romper, get involved? What's the, what's the best way for them to contact, contact you and and the company?
1: Yeah. So um, on Instagram, we're, at Rent a Romper, um, I'm on LinkedIn, Lauren Greger, and if you have a baby or a toddler, you can find us at rentaromper.com and rent and save yourself a lot of time.
0: Got it. And that's rent a romper, just like it sounds. Rent the word a romper. We love it. Exactly. Thank you so much, Lauren. I appreciate it. Uh, we've got to get you back on. I love what you're doing, and I appreciate appreciate your time during the holiday season.
1: Uh, Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here anytime and love what you're doing as well.